All right, welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson. Um, in 1844, not too long before the martyrdom of the prophet, an unfortunate event took place that has um, left its mark on Mormonism to this day. A man by the name of King Follett was working down in a well when a bucket of rocks fell on his head. Um, at his funeral on the 7th of April, 1844, Joseph Smith gave a sermon known as the King Follett Discourse that has impacted Mormonism from that day forward. Tonight, we're going to uh, do another in our uh, sort of dummies series where we're going to take a look at the King Follett Discourse, talk about its implication today, and and, and see what it says. Tonight, I'm joined by uh, three of our regulars. First of all, from Las Vegas, we have Mike. Hello. Hey, Mike. And over from Hi. Japan, we have uh, Glenn. Hey, and this is the last time you'll be able to say that. Oh, you're leaving? By the time, yeah, by the time this posts, I'll be back in the uh, good old U.S. Oh, well, uh, welcome home. Thanks. And uh, um, from the, the home front, bringing it home for Zion, is uh, Tom. Hi, Tom. Hey, John. Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, Tom. All right, so uh, like I said, King Follett fell, well, the rocks fell on him in the well, and um, Joseph Smith, on a blustery day, gave this speech. Now, we want to um, talk a little bit about um, the um, provenance of this speech, why we should believe it, or why the text is considered to be accurate. First of all, it was, it was like I said, on the 7th of April, 1844, and it was recorded by several notable journalers, journalists. Um, in the church at that time. Thomas Bullock, William Clayton, Willard Richards, and Wilfred Woodruff all recorded substantial portions of it. Now, Thomas Bullock and William Clayton were both um, secretaries to the prophet, and they were both used to writing in shorthand. Um, Thomas apparently had his own special invented shorthand where he could keep up and, um, you know, he was, he was skilled at recording uh, these sort of things. And William Clayton obviously recorded a lot of things. Several of the, um, Revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants today are, are sole sourced from William Clayton. So these two, these two men who were very influential took a lot of the notes and, um, the text we're going to be using tonight is an amalgamation, um, by Stan Larson, which was published in 1978 in BYU Studies that used all four of those individuals, Thomas Bullock, William Clayton, Willard Richards, and Wilfred Woodruff and went and compared them. So, the 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 text, although it's very it's very old, is probably one of the most accurate um, texts of any sort of Joseph Smith uh, discourse we have. Right. This was a this was a conference, and the anniversary of the organization of the church was it not? Well, I, I I it was at that time, you know, the first of April, but I believe it was just at his funeral, at um at King Follett's funeral. Right. I, I think I think there were people that were gathered in Nauvoo for the the general conference. And do you all remember um, when um, the Nauvoo Expositor was published? It was it was after this, but it wasn't very long after this. Right. Um, so yeah, this this was just three months before he was killed. Yeah. So so this was sort of his uh, swan song, and um, you know, refer to some of the discussion there. You know, like we've said before, things were running hot in Nauvoo at this time, and there were starting to be grumbling grumblers and um, other secret works going on. You know, the Council of Fifty, I think, had met by this time, and I don't know if the whittling el um, deacons were 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 whistling with their Bowie knives in the in the <laughs> streets yet. But but I mean, it's a subcontext here that that all that sort of 
uh, wild stuff was starting to happen in Nauvoo. And, you know, I, I, I read a little bit, you can, anybody could go to Wikipedia and, and read what I'm going to say here, but that Joseph Smith was running for president at this time. He was really busy with uh, the, the civic politics in, in Nauvoo. And it sounded like he hadn't, he hadn't really done a lot um, of, of preaching. So, so this was kind of a, a treat for people because uh, he, he had been so busy with all of his political ambitions that he actually sat down and, and discoursed in front of the, the group. Does that sound right to you guys? Yeah, it does. Uh, there's about eight yeah. to 20,000 here. Is that what the number was? I, I, I don't know. People are here. I'm not sure. It was a very large group. I know that. And there's a there's a place in Nauvoo. Now I've never been to Nauvoo yet, but there's apparently like a a, a hillside where they would sit. At, in Nauvoo, they didn't have anything like um, tabernacles or chapels, and they did most of their preaching outside. So there's this kind of half bowl of of where the, they would they had a little wooden stand down there, and you know these guys were orators of the old school. You know they would get up and and they would shout and. and uh, and project like the old Shakespearean guys, so so it would have been something to listen to, just like King Benjamin in the Book of Mormon, right? Yeah, except there's no tents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, so one thing that's interesting here is at this time, um, there had been a lot of things start happening behind closed doors. I guess is the best way to, to put it. Um, the temple ceremony um, really had started had started really happening by this time, and that's something that not everybody was privy to. This is when a lot of um, Joseph Smith became more involved in Freemasonry and the Council of the Fifty, and there were a lot of sort of secret goings on. And um, there are a lot of evidences that some doctrines were not taught openly. For example, polygamy had been practiced for a couple of years by this point, and that wasn't taught openly at all. So, you know, people would be initiated into that. They would be invited over to, to the Joseph's storehouse or whatever. They'd be taken to an upper room and then they'd be told about the doctrine. So this is an interesting talk because we're not sure how much of this stuff, this is the first time, you know, that this was really being out publicly and how long Joseph Smith had been teaching some of these doctrines in private. Now, now, Mike, you, you were saying that some of these doctrines at least had been taught openly for a long time. Is that right? Yeah, I've got kind of a long list, but I'll, I'll cut through to the good ones. But in 1832, which everybody pretty much had a copy of the Doctrine and Covenants, in 7658, he states, uh, Wherefore, as it is written, they are gods, even the sons of God, talking about those who are members of the Church of the Firstborn who go to the Celestial Kingdom. So as early as 1832, it was taught that if you go to the Celestial Kingdom when you die, you're going to be a god. Um... Fawn Brody talks about it. She says this uh, in regards to the King Follett discourse. For the first time, he proclaimed in a unified discourse the themes he had been in inculcating in fragments and frequently in secret to his most favored saints, the glory of knowledge, the multiplicity of gods, the eternal progression of the human soul. So what really the King Follett discourse was was an amalgamation of things he'd been teaching for a while. Um well, you just said that it might have been to some of his, you know, the guys on the inside, some of his secret cohorts, not to everybody, not to the general membership. Well, for a, for a timeline, um, in 1832, like we just talked about in the vision, section 76, that men can become equal with God, 
Uh, between 1835 and 1839, he began to teach that there were many gods, a council of whom directed the creation of this earth, ideas which may have come from his translation of the book of Abraham and his study of Hebrew. Uh, between 1835 and 1839, he conceived, perhaps from the revelation through work with the Egyptian papyri, that gods exist one above another so that there is no end of them. Uh, between 1838 and 1841, uh, with the foregoing ideas established, Joseph taught that God had not always been a God, having once existed as a man. Um, and that we see in the, in the book of Abraham. Uh, he had told Lorenzo Snow in 1836. Um, let's see. Lorenzo Snow's first encounter with this doctrine occurred 5th of June, 1836, two weeks before he was baptized at a patriarchal blessing meeting at Kirtland, where he was told by Joseph Smith Sr., you will become as great as you can possibly wish, even as great as God, and you cannot wish to be greater. To Snow, this was a dark parable approaching almost to blasphemy. Um, he says, uh, in 1840, Snow received an extraordinary manifestation in which the eyes of an understanding were open and the dark parable was unfolded, and he formed the often quoted couplet, as man now is, God once was, as God now is, man may be which for that was 1840, four years before the King Follett discourse. So that was um, something that Wilfred Woodruff concocted. Lorenzo Snow. And, oh, Lorenzo Snow. Okay. Yes. But, but Joseph never actually said those words. Well, Joseph Smith Sr. had told Lorenzo Snow in 1836, you can become as great as God. Uh, yeah. Parley Pratt uh, responded to a newspaper article um, the Spirit should guide his saints into all truth. God is in possession of all truth and no more. Consequently, his saints will know what he knows. And it is a, an acknowledged principle that knowledge is power. Consequently, if they have the same knowledge that God has, they will have the same power. Hence the propriety of calling them gods, even the sons of God. That was in 1838 from Parley Pratt. Yeah, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I'm with you, Mike. I, I, I think that you can see a natural progression of the doctrine. Although, you know, the, by the time we get to King Follett, you know, you're, you're really looking at 180 degrees from, say, Mormonism 1830, and that which is in the Book of Mormon. But you can trace a natural progression, so, so I, don't, I don't have any issue with what you're saying there. And, and I think those doctrines would have developed and not been fully understood, maybe not even by Joseph himself. And by the way, kudos for quoting uh, Brody, Mike. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I so, got that from I got that from a paper of Van Hill put out. Oh, so. oh, so you 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 didn't go straight to Brody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, you guys ready to to launch into the text? Now we're we're not going to read the whole thing, but we're gonna um, we're gonna go over the highlights. Okay, um, so in this in this there's several great doctrines that are um, put forth in this document. I counted, by my count, about five. Five that I, I see are very important doctrines. We're going to hit those. We go through the, the the text here, and then there's some other little side things that I that I think are are very interesting. Um, one of the first things I, I want to point out is, and I, this is a theme I point out before. The, you know, this is at the latter end of Joseph Smith's career, and Joseph Smith is getting pretty pumped up on himself by this stage and there's a couple of there's a couple of lines in this thing where he you know that sort of oh i don't know grandioseness starts popping out i want to refer <laughs> on uh, page um se se page seven he he says um for i speak as one having authority and not as a scribe <laughs> now, that's obviously a biblical allusion to jesus um 
it's, <laughs> you know, because in the, in the New Testament it says that, um, you know, he spoke as one having authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm referring to Jesus Christ. So for Joseph to apply that language to himself uh, shows a great deal of self-esteem. <laughs> self-esteem. Well, it shows yeah. he's doing his job. Anybody that holds the priest is supposed to act in, in the name of Christ. Anyone that baptizes does that. Yeah, well, yeah, I can see that. I don't know. I, I don't know. If, <laughs> tooting your own horn and and you know the way Joseph Smith here is doing it is a little. I, I tend to agree with John. I I don't know if I'd say, make the same leaps that John's making, but yeah, he's he's definitely pounding his own chest in front of people for sure. Yeah, there's a, there's a portion of the crowd that came to see a fallen prophet, and he's stating here that uh, I am still the prophet if he's acting in the name of Christ and speaking well, yeah, on his behalf. Because at this point, there have been quite a bit of division in Mormonism at this point, right? Well, at this is when the... Uh, at, least, at least some branches had started to splinter well, off, Well, right? we, we had the first big schism, um, well, probably the second schism, around 1838, you know, Oliver Cowdery yeah. and the Witnesses and all those guys down in Missouri branched. But th this is this is the, the eve of the of the next big schism. Um, and of course, you know, the, the Nauvoo Expositor and the events that fell out from that ending up in the martyrdom. So. <laughs> Schism Eve. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, by this time, William Law had already founded the, the Reformation, the, the Reformed Church in Nauvoo. So that was already going on when, when he gave this yeah. discourse. Yeah. And you can but see his, I, go, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, just, just to what you said about the grandioseness, I, I, and, and the difference between having authority and being a scribe. To me, I wonder if that's a clue as to, you know, how jo Joseph is really getting the information that he's getting. Because the, there are several times in here where he talks about the Holy Ghost, but it's all coming from his interpretation of the Bible. And there's, there's one time where he says, God has told this to me. But, you know, I, I mean, I, I think we, we, we might imagine as members of the church that he's got like the bat phone, you know, that, that he picks up and talks to God and God says, here's what's going on. Or that, you know, there's, there's these conferences in the, the, the temple or in different places. But I, I, I just wondered as I was reading through this, how much of this was just his own uh, speculation as he was going through the Bible and, and studying it, pondering it, praying about it and coming to conclusions and then feeling uh, that that confirmation of the Holy Ghost, and then saying, "Okay, well, since I felt the Holy Ghost, that's God telling me that this is this is true." And so when He's saying that He's a He's the authority, and He's not just a scribe, I wonder if that's saying that He He's not He's not just writing down something that somebody else is telling Him. He's actually creating this on His own. He, he's the one that's that's that, that's creating these insights. Uh, I, we know I, it, along well, that same line, we're talking about early evidences of what's taught in the King Follett, and, and to go along with what you're saying now, in 1833, we got section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and it talks about how Christ gained his knowledge, and he got it through studying and receiving it a little by little and line upon line, as we teach in the church. And Joseph had taught this to the members, and so for what you're saying, you know, God, uh, Joseph's figuring this out on his own through his study and with the company of the Holy Ghost, that's how we're supposed to learn these things. Glenn, you have a really, Glenn, you have a really good point, and I want to, I want to, I want to just jump on that for a second more. Um, I think we really do see a, a way that in, in this in this talk, the way that Joseph Smith worked, he he really riffs on some Hebrew that he apparently was getting out of his Hebrew grammar, right. and um, 
and he also got his copy of a German Bible, and then he was apparently using a German dictionary and then interpreting that German. And I think that's what he would do. He'd find these definitions of these words and then see more wordplay than he had in his King James Bible, and then he would just run with it. I think that's a really good window into how he he arrived at things like um, the Book of Abraham and the Moses and uh, his translation of the Bible, that, that getting the idea from the text or from things he was reading about the text and then just running with those things. And, and the yeah. way that he presents this stuff is that it's simple and it's plain and it's there for all of you to see it. It's right here in the Bible. And I defy anybody to tell me that it's not, you know, it, it's not just that he's saying, I've got a new revelation. He's saying, this has been right in front of our eyes the whole time, but, but unlearned people haven't seen it. I see it because I'm seeing through the Holy ghost. Yeah, yeah, there's a great line that I, I had here. Um, if you tell me, that, this is Joseph Smith talking, if you tell me that God made the world out of something, they would call you a fool. The reason is that they are unlearned, but I am learned, and I know more than all the world put together. The Holy Ghost does anyhow. And, you know, that goes to my original point of his, of his, of his hubris, and I guess some of that comes from, like you guys are saying, he believed that he was the conduit of the Holy Ghost, but nevertheless, he believed that what he was saying was was the truth, and he was the smartest guy around. Um, well, I do have to say, I, I'm sorry, I cut you off a couple times, Tom. <laughs> Go ahead. That's our that's our grandioso, Glenn. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, because because you just said that uh, uh, that that quote, John, where I, I was reading this the whole time, thinking, okay, Joseph Smith, grandiose as well. But when he deferred to the Holy Ghost in, in that part, I kind of went, oh, okay, you know that 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 decreases a few notches of the hubris meter when he says, I, I know more than the whole world put together, or at least the Holy Ghost does. Uh, uh, don't... If the Holy Ghost does, then I'm going to, to associate myself with that. But isn't that what all cult leaders say? I mean, don't they all say, Whoa, hey, easy. You know, I, hey oh, I'm, 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 I, don't, I don't know. I'm channeling the transcended masters or something like that. The, I, I, I see what you're saying. I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you half of it. But, you know, to, to say, hey, you know, I'm saying all these wild and crazy things and I know more than everybody else in the world, but I'm not real. I'm really a humble guy because I'm just the trans, the, the, the voice for the cosmos. Uh, you still got hubris going on there. Sure. Well, it goes back to what I said in the in the first vision podcast. This is confidence mixed with humility. And that, that's I how don't, I don't know, Mike. I mean, if the bartender's mixing confidence, humility, he's definitely putting a little more confidence in the drink there. I, I think <laughs> I think that uh, this statement that uh, that Glenn and John, you guys have both mentioned, where he says, "I am learned and know more than all the world put together." Pause. The Holy Ghost does anyhow. It almost seems like he had that moment, like, "Oh man, I'm getting a little caught up here. I'm going to throw this little just kidding at the end." Well, at I, least a, a little bit of a, a net to catch himself. Well, you know, Joseph self awareness. <laughs> yeah. jo Joseph yeah. spoke about that before. He said, "I have a little thorn in my side and a little bit of a sin I have to overcome on a regular basis." But put yourself in his position. If you were a prophet and you'd organized a city and brought together a church, you'd struggle with a little with uh, overconfidence as well. And so, I you know, well, I, for. I don't know, Mike. I mean, I, I've I've tried to picture myself in the Joseph Smith's shoes, having plenty of ladies around and stuff like that. I don't know if I've, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't. Personally, I don't think that I could let my ego get get so much where I'm starting to compare myself with Jesus. 
I just don't know if I could get to that point, you know, not say, you know, the president, the president of the United States ain't got nothing on me kind of stuff. I, I don't know. Well, there's something else that Joseph Smith said about this time. It wasn't in this talk, but he said something to the effect of, if only you knew who I was. And, you know, and there's been countless speculation on that. Some have assumed that Joseph Smith was going down the path that a lot of cult leaders go and saying he was Jesus incarnate. Some people have assumed that he was uh, suggesting that he was the Holy Ghost. I think even Heber C. Kimball suggested that somewhere else. But there's no, obviously something so, going on in his head. Someone compared him to Christ once, and he corrected them in front of others. I don't have the quote in front of me, that, but that happened. They, com they compared him to Christ or said he was Christ in the flesh, and he corrected them. Uh, he you said, know, no, I'm not. You know, to level set, Joseph Smith has had himself crowned king. He's running for president. He's got the secret council of 50 going up. He's walking around in a uniform all the time, insisting people call him General Smith. I mean, you know, the the, the ingredients are all there. Well, he was stepping down as prophet to, to handle political affairs and making Hiram prophet, and the people refused him. Right, yeah, yeah, I mean— that, that, my only point, there's a lot going on here. And he does drop the term, we're not going to go through all of them, he does drop the term fool quite a few times in this talk, referring to people who disagree with him or don't understand um, what what he's saying. So uh, let's, let's actually jump into the text. I want to go to the first um, portion here on page 7, if you're following along in your book. Remember, we have the uh, amalgamated text from the 1978... Um, Mormon or BYU studies and I'll post a link it's available for free out there on the internet you can read along in your book um, on page seven um, Joseph Smith really kind of begins into the whole the, the what everybody knows the King Follett discourse for um, and I'll, I'll go ahead and read that uh, starting on the third paragraph down about the middle he says first God himself who sits enthroned in yonder heavens is a man like unto one of yourselves that is the great secret if the veil were rent today and the great God that holds this world in its sphere and the planets in their orbit and who upholds all things by his power, if you were to see him today, you would see him in all the person, image, fashion, and very form of a man like yourselves. For Adam was a man formed in his likeness and created in the very fashion and image of God. Adam received instruction, walked, talked, and conversed with him as one man talks and communicates with another. Yeah, why is that a great secret? Uh, uh, because the Catholics had stomped it out. Oh. <laughs> you mean Catholics like Michelangelo? <laughs> now, 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 I can understand the the argument that um, you know the Catholic Church and the Council of Nicaea had gone to that Trinitarian view. Um, although I think we sort of tend to misrepresent it here, but I don't know of any early church teaching, Mike that suggested that God the Father, the great Jehovah, was a person. Can do you you have any sort of cite sort of or a quote for that? Uh, every time they mention he has a hand or a finger or, I mean, uh, how about Genesis chapter 1, page 1, as he cites here in the King Follett discourse. So, Mike, when, uh, when the Bible we'll says... Our image. When the Bible says that um, it repenteth God that he make man before he did the flood, was that figurative speaking, or was God really repenting? That's a mistranslation. It was Noah who felt repented. That okay, God so the man. Bible can be full of problems. Uh, I, I'm just, I'm just saying that you know, I don't think that it's just because it says God has a hand. They would take that to mean that God necessarily has a hand. What about God made man in our, our image? 
I'm not going to speak for the Christian world here, but I, I think they would they would not necessarily mean that means like nipples on a man and hairy legs. I think they would say that means more like our soul, our ability to reason, our ability to know right from wrong, um, that, that we got that power from God as opposed to our exact physical image. And, wh- and why, why isn't that a mistranslation, Mike? Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's everywhere. When Christ walks with the apostles and says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, it's, it's very plain. Yeah, yeah. Because he represents the Father. It doesn't mean that he looks the same. I don't know. Yeah, it, it means what it says it means. If you see me, you've seen the Father. God created us in his image. You know, we, in we, his, we, in his likeness. About, we, we talked about the uh, martyrdom of Stephen when we were doing the, the first vision podcast. But but that that one w- was a vision, whether it was an internal or external vision, <laughs> where he saw God and Jesus side by side as in human form, right? Well, yes. Or is that just how I've always imagined it? Christ stands on the right hand of God. Okay. Oh, I mean, it, it, it's hard for me to, it, it, it's just hard for me to see why this is a big secret that God is in the image of a man because it, it seems like that idea has been a, around a long time. It seems like it's been in art going back even in the apostasy, it was in it was depicted in art, and maybe you would say, "Well, that's figurative. That's not literal." I don't know, but it doesn't seem like it's. It, it seems more like it's a, a rhetorical device of Joseph Smith to say, "We know a secret that they don't know," and and yes. kind of more that, that group identity thing than that it's really a, a big distinction. I, don't, or, I, I like how you called it the apostasy instead of the Renaissance. That was pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, the dark ages. I can't think of the guy's name off the top of my head, but there was a man burned at the stake for stating that God is a man. And I mean, that's why the restoration of the gospel had to take place in America, because Europe was full of the dead bodies of people that had tried to teach these things. Now, to quote directly from Genesis. And America didn't have Lamanites all strewn around throughout the dead Nephites? I'm talking about the Protestant church fighting against the Catholic uh, false teachings. Every time somebody raised their head, they were burned at the stake or oh, drawn let's and not, let, Let's not say. Hey, hey, Mike, Mike, wait! I, before you say that, um, the 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 all the people burned at the stake in the in the United States were not by Catholics. Those are Protestants burning witches, but that's a whole separate issue. <laughs> oh. <laughs> all right, let, but if you want, I can go back across the other end of the house and get my Fox's Book of the Martyrs. No, 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 naming no, names. No, no. Uh, but, but look, but, Gen- Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So we not only have a father, but we have a mother here too that we're stating in the scriptures. But you try and teach that to a Protestant or a Catholic congregation. Try to I've, treat- been kicked out of, I've been kicked out of Christian chat rooms for saying God has a wife and that we have a heavenly mother. Mike, you'll, boom, get, you'll, get kicked out of a, you'll get kicked out of a Mormon chapel for saying that. Um, God has a wife and a, we yeah. have a mother. So, so Mike, I think you have you have a really good point that that there are, and this goes to what we were talking about before. Joseph Smith was not just making stuff up; you know, he was riffing on things in the Bible. Now, now, if you're if you're a Mormon, you're going to believe that that is 
proof, like you're saying, of you know this sort of apostasy that he was he was hitting on ancient ideas. But to go to what you were saying, Glenn, I, I do think it's common. You know, you watch The Simpsons, and God's always showing up with a beard, and he looks like a man. But I don't yeah. think theologically people would say that, that means he was a man. And I, I think there's a if we read a few sentences down here, we can get sort of what Joseph Smith is really getting at. He says, um, "No, yeah, I, I agree with that." Okay. I, that 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 distinction that he was a man before he became a god is is the great secret. But but that's not what he says in the speech. He says if if I opened up the heavens right now and you could see him sitting on his throne, what you would see is a man in the same image of yourself. That that's to me it doesn't seem like it's a big revelation. Yeah, I, the, I, the, I agree. The with part that. that follows up does. But go ahead. Yeah, and the, the follow up I agree hundred percent. The follow up is Joseph Smith saying. For we have imagined that God was God from the very beginning of all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so that you may see. Um, these things are incomprehensible to some, but they are simple, he says. So so this is interesting to me because the church is slipping back away from this view. Um, I have I, I, I know several Mormons who insist that um, God is an eternal being and that God has been so they they have gone away from this King Follett idea that God was once a schlub on some planet who became um, who became uh, exalted. That 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 idea is becoming foreign even in Mormon chapels. I think schlub. Yeah, that's a technical term. You can look it up. Cafeteria, <laughs> yeah. mo- cafeteria Mormons, right there. But, but what he said was that he was like Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So I I said at the beginning there were five big doctrinal points and. And that's the first one, that God was once a, a human being. God was once a man. And now the second one, that you want Glenn, you're, you're hitting on the second one, that, that Jesus and God have something in common. You want to run with that one? No. <laughs> <laughs> I quit. Yeah. No, well, I mean, I, I think, you know, you say schlub. Um, that that, that kind of discolors it a little bit from from what I think Joseph Smith was saying. You know, Joseph Smith was saying that, and, and this goes back to how he's getting this information. He, he's getting this information from reading in the New Testament when Christ says, I do nothing but what I've seen the Father do before me. And so he's extrapolating from that, oh, okay, well then God must have lived on an earth the way that Christ did and, you know, worked out his salvation with fear and trembling. You know, wh- whether that means he was crucified and w- was a savior for a different family of gods. I don't know that that, that there, there's a lot of ways that we could interpret what he was saying. If if you take that interpretation, it isn't consistent with what he says later on uh, about God as an intelligence that was greater than the other intelligence, and he was sitting among them. And you know how it all fits, I still don't quite get. But but what he was saying was that uh, God became a God and advanced through this eternal progression to where he is now. Uh, and, and Jesus is on that same path and that we are on that same path as well, uh, which I still don't quite understand uh, how we can be saviors well, the way that Christ is a savior. But that, that's the implication, I, had, I think. I had a seminary but, teacher that uh, told us to start toughening up now, because if we did want to become like God, we would have to 
be a savior of our own world. We would have to be crucified just like Jesus was because God the Father was once the savior and got crucified on some other planet. So Yeah, your, your seminary teacher knew well, the Adam, think... Adam God doctrine, huh? So, I, so I, is that reincarnation? Yes, this is part, this is, uh, you, to really understand this stuff, you have to get into the Adam God doctrine, um, which has uh, uh, this progression that one goes through that one must become basically an Adam to a world and a savior to a world and a Jehovah to a world. But well, is that that's Brigham Young speaking? That's not Joseph speaking. Uh, according to Brigham Young, he got it all from Joseph Smith, and and you you have shades of it here. But just like Glenn is saying, it doesn't really make sense unless you get that other that other point out. Because what Joseph Smith is is playing on here is is in the in the sentence he says, um, uh, he meaning Jesus or he was once a man like one of us, and that God himself, the Father of us all, once dwelled on earth, the same as Jesus Christ himself did in the flesh and like us. And that's the playing on the scripture in the New Testament that says, when Jesus says, I, you know, I haven't done anything, I haven't seen my Father do. And so, the, you know, the idea is that, is that God, the Father, um, is, was once a, a savior of a, of a world um, like Jesus. Well, th th does he actually say that God the Father was a savior in the King Follow discourse? Not here. He implies it. You know, that's the sentence I just read, but he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't well, say it. Full he says on. he you know worked the, out his own salvation with fear and trembling. This is what I, this is what he says. What did means. Jesus what did Jesus say? Mark it, Elder Rigdon. The scriptures inform us that Jesus said, As the Father hath power in himself, even so hath the Son power to do what? Why what the Father did? The answer is obvious, in a manner to lay down his body and take it up again. Jesus, what are you going to do? To lay down my life as my father did and take it up again. All right, that that's what he said. He's establishing a pattern of how we are saved and how we go about and work out our, our salvation and exaltation. It's a pattern that, that has happened in this world, it happened in a previous world, and it's going to happen in future worlds, that God has a system for helping us to achieve our ultimate potential. And he explores this in the book of Abraham, and Christ pretty well spits it out in the intercessory prayer. Uh, in the intercessory prayer, the Savior says, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their words. Speaking of us reading the words of the apostles. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou givest me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. This is a system. What the Savior did, we can do. And that's what Joseph Smith is establishing here. Whether or not we're going to be saviors or Adams in our world is a whole separate issue. But what Joseph Smith is establishing in the King Follett Discourse is that there is a system of salvation, and that is the plan of salvation or the great plan of happiness that all everyone understands that God has for us. I, I don't know. I, the plan of salvation, I don't know. I, I didn't catch that in any of the King Fall. I, I don't know. That's what this is. The Savior is resurrected as we will be resurrected, as the Father was resurrected. Well, Mike, you, you started this by, by saying that Joseph Smith did not say that God was a savior the way that Christ was a savior. But but then you quoted the King Follett discourse that said that he laid down his life like the father laid down his life and brought it up again. The way and we will lay down our lives. Everybody dies and everybody gets resurrected. But 
but but we don't lay down our life and take it up again. Yeah, that's that's very um, you know messianic language there. Yeah, I, I just take it to say that he is resurrected the same way we will be resurrected. Everybody gets a body that accepted the plan of salvation in the in the pre mortal world. Okay, I'm fair enough. I, I I pretty much agree with what you're saying. I I do think this is the germ of the later doctrines that would be expound upon by Brigham Young, and I, I do think that this doctrine is no longer really in the church, but interestingly enough, Tom mentioned that it had been taught, and I had a discussion one time with a seminary teacher or, or, or somebody like that who was saying the same, musing on the same point, that um, that maybe we would all have to become um, saviors of future worlds. Um, and well, you, you, th this brings up a good point, and I, I guess I was thinking about this when I was reading it, how important does the church view the king fall? They don't, they don't, obviously it's not uh, in any of the standard works. Do they consider this as scriptorial because it came from Joseph or? I, I don't, the, the, go ahead, Mike. Go ahead, I'm sorry. The, the talk itself is not canonized. The doctrines taught in it are canonized. I, I would just say, I would just add to Mike that some of the doctrines are, are canonized. There's some of them that we've yeah. abandoned. But I, I think I think it's right. It's, it hasn't gone in the Scriptures because there's too many problematic things in it. But there are other things that have become such a huge foundation for Mormon doctrine. That, and that's why I think this King Follett discourse is so important, that it can't be extracted from Mormonism, and that, that so many things were built on this understanding um, that it, it it is of paramount importance. But I've got to say that... One of the things that I, I have always loved about being a member of the Mormon Church is that I feel like I've got this big canvas in front of me and all these paints <laughs> that, 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 that I can take and, you know, that I can do this kind of speculation. Like, you know, you were talking about the, the seminaries teachers doing. Uh, that, that's always been fun. It, 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 has, that, has that been your experience at all, you know? delving into these things and trying to, to make connections between one obscure doctrine and another obscure doctrine to try to to raise from, you know, line upon line, precept on precept. Yeah, I, I kind of yeah, see it like the, the painting in the Ferris Bueller movie where they close in on the dots. And then as you back up, you see how all these things create this incredible image. That That's how I see the doctrines of the church. Yeah, except for it doesn't come exactly into focus for everyone in the same perspective mike i mean obviously you see a completely different picture than some other people do in the in the mormon church i i just i i want to always remember the moment that mike compared the, the church to ferris bueller that is awesome <laughs> you know you know glenn, glenn to your point i think speculative um doctrines and speculative theology were, were a big hobby in the church and were very much tolerated up until a few years ago until till um um correlation try to stamp the hell out of that one and if you read yeah. you can get books you know go to your di and get any book written before 1965 and they're great they're wonderful they 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 have all sorts of speculation and theorizing and nobody has any any conniption about well if you read the if you read the books from desert book today they all have this disclaimer in them uh i don't speak for the official church or the church e even ones written by you know people who are supposed to be prophets have that in there they didn't bother with that garbage 40 years ago because everybody <laughs> everybody knew that it was speculative right nobody was going to say that if heber j grant said something the church would be like eh whatever maybe um and unfortunately we've got this 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 um 
Politburo sort of view on doctrine today, and because of it, it's all palpum. It's 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 garbage. But when when you go to when you get to the heart of what religion, what this religion means to people in their daily lives, you know, I I, I think there are people who still really cling to this uh, tradition of speculation, and and you know whether it's correlated out of the official publications of the church, you're not going to be able to go and stomp out all of the seminary teachers and want to be seminary teachers and would be scriptorians and, and people who want to be the next, you know, Joseph Smith in, in some ways and, and get the, the promised uh, revelations that, that are out there. I, I don't think you can really snuff that out. And thank goodness, because it's the best part of the church. I mean, you go to any elders yeah. quorum and everybody, the reading out of the manual, following the book, everybody will be sitting there um, playing with their fingernails and staring at the floor, and then somebody will bring up this weird idea, and everybody, every, the whole thing comes yeah. to life, right? Um, because, because that, I mean, that's what excites people, and that's that's the the beauty of it, and that's you know you you look you know you talk about the early period of of the church, you know Justin Martyr and up to to uh, you know Constantine. It's a really exciting time because there's a lot of that speculation going on, and and when I read the 19th century Mormon. Stuff. There's that same sort of excitement that's just gone from the church today. Maybe it'll come back. All right. All right. Next podcast. Yeah. Speaking of coming back, let's go back to the uh, to the uh, <laughs> yeah. the text here. I, I I said there were five key doctrinal points. So the first one was that God was once a man. The second one was this side doctrine of Jesus and God doing the same thing. The third one um, on page eight on in the uh, second paragraph down. Joseph Smith speaking. You have got to learn how to make yourselves gods in order to save yourselves and be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done, by going from a small capacity to a great capacity, from a small degree to another, from grace to grace until the resurrection of the dead, from exaltation to exaltation till you are able to sit in everlasting burnings and everlasting power and glory as those who have gone before sit enthroned. This is great to say at a funeral. He's going on to everlasting burnings. <laughs> That's funny. I, I think this is this is probably the one of the most beautiful doctrines of, of Mormonism. And really? absolutely. You know, the, the idea that we're the 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 the, the kernel of, of, of God's ourselves, that ourselves that within that very spark of, of godhood that we can progress little by little, bit by bit, the, that we can become better. Um, the deification of man, yeah. I, I agree with that. The part that makes me uncomfortable is when he says that we must become gods to work out what, what is it to work out our own salvation or to save ourselves. To to me that that that's pretty uh, inflammatory. You know, if if you're taking a a hard line Christian uh, atonement centered approach, then that that kind of throws that by the by the wayside and says, yeah, what Christ did on the cross, that was, that was good. But what, what must happen is that you must attain Godhood so that you can save yourself. But to me, to me, that's, that's, that's wonderful. I mean, this Christian idea, maybe this is why I never became a Christian when I, when I left Mormonism, this idea that no matter what I did, I just had to love Jesus and then everything would be wiped clean and I'll spend the rest of eternity just basking in the glory of God. Yawn. I mean, who who wants that? Uh, what what good is that? What does anybody learn from that? Um, n nothing, you know. And this idea that eventually, yeah, it's true that Jesus and his atonement 
helps us to to improve and and progress but eventually we're going to have to own our own thing we're going to have to overcome our, our our own weaknesses that's a beautiful doctrine that's a useful doctrine yeah. i'm thrilled you're saying this john <laughs> no i i'm, glad, I, I'm, I'm glad, glad you got this go ahead tom i'm sorry i was just going to i was just going to agree the idea that uh you know we can we can sell this house on this planet and get our own house on some other planet eternal progression i think yeah i think it's really cool Always, always, learn, always, always learning, right? This is what's yeah. great about Mormonism is, is, is it cuts away from the anemic Protestant teachings and gets into something deep and meaty that you can sink your teeth into. Now, all these things that are taught here in the King Folly Discourse are expanded upon back in 1832 and 1833 in 80, section 88 and 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, that, that God that dwells in everlasting burnings, that is a force of creation, uh, is... Is talked about in 88, and in 93, like I quoted before, Christ learned how to be a God uh, step by step, grace for grace, throughout his mortal ministry. Only, unlike us, he was perfect in his learning. But section 93 goes on to say that uh, man was also in the beginning with God, intelligence or light of truth was not created or made. All truth is independent in that sphere which God has placed it uh, to act for itself as all intelligence. And he goes on to talk about how we get the Holy Ghost. We bring in the light of Christ. We get that fire of creation in ourselves and become as God. And that, that was 10 years before the King Follett discourse. Joseph was teaching this. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's good stuff. If anybody well, likes I that. I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm poo-pooing the idea of eternal <laughs> progression. It's, it's one of my favorite parts of, of Mormonism and, and that cosmology. I really do like it. I, I don't like the attitude, though, when, when you say... Then, then what good is what? What did you call it, Mike? A anemic Protestantism. <laughs> yes, you know, that's I mean, exactly what I said. If, I like that. If, if you got if you've got people who are so focused on the next world and thrones and this, it's pretty easy to get puffed up into this um, hubris and, and and to ignore some of the basic teachings that Christ had of. The, the beatitudes and kindness and 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 charity and actually doing service for people that isn't geared towards converting them and that's you know, what this I, is it's the same thing christ taught it? all this in the intercessory prayer this is what we're doing everything you do is focused on you becoming like me that's what christ so correct so, so think that your derogatory attitude towards protestants is the same as christ's attitude towards protestants that's how he feels <laughs> I'm saying that they've taken what Christ taught and stripped it down to where there's hardly anything left. And and, and when I don't you, know. what Joseph maybe, did, Smith is doing is pulling back the tarp that they'd hidden everything behind and saying, "Look how big this is! Look how ex exciting this is!" Maybe what they're doing is focusing on a smaller portion than what you think you have, but they're magnifying it to a larger degree. Who? Ouch! <laughs> <laughs> I. I I can tell you, when I go to, to born-again churches and, and sit in their services, there's an excitement there that, that is, is, you know, I, I like the, the excitement they have. But when you get into the actual teachings, it's so thin. There's, there's hardly anything there. They don't, they don't have the scope. What I like, that's what's great about this is the scope. You're getting such a huge view of the whole plan. Uh, so, I think so there's more there than you're getting the credit for. So if your ward was just a little more exciting, you'd have everything. <laughs> <laughs>
All right. Well, well, John, John's given us the secret to excitement. We just got to get some of these wackos in Elder Squirm bringing up the uh, speculative theories. Yeah. I, I have to go back, is what you're saying. Unfortunately, they're always <laughs> talking about Elder Squirm. Yeah, they're always talking about Glenn Beck and food storage. But if you can get them, if you can get them on something <laughs> better than that, uh, <laughs> yeah, it gets fun again. All right. Um, let's go on to. I, I said there were, there were there were five doctrines. So we've we've we hit the third. The third one now is that man that all of us can become gods. Um, and here's the next one, and um, this one I'm not such a big fan of, but it's very, very important to understand Mormonism, especially in Utah. Um, at the top of page 9, um, saw the Father do what? I saw the Father work out his kingdom with fear and trembling, and I am doing the same too. When I get my kingdom, I will give it to the Father, and it will add to and exalt his glory. He will take a higher exaltation, and I will take his place. And I am also exalted, so that he obtains kingdom rolling upon kingdom. So here you have well stated the introduction of multi-level marketing into Mormonism. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and the, I, I thought so exactly. Too, but yeah. but but you know, aside from that flip comment, you this really helps understand the law of adoption, which um, of course a lot of people in the church don't know even existed. Which is when the temple sealing practice was introduced and and well into the Utah practice, it, it went on for thirty or forty years. You would be sealed to your wife and sealed to your your children would be sealed to you. But as a man, you would be sealed to somebody else besides your father generally, and you would generally be sealed to a priesthood authority. And the law of adoption had the doctrine going. So you know, like um, uh, you know. Brigham Young was sealed to Joseph Smith, and Heber C. Kimball was sealed to Brigham Young. And and the idea was that whoever was up the chain inherited the kingdoms of all the people underneath him. Um, so, so so this is a very important doctrine during that first phase in, in, in Utah because it really shapes the way polygamy ran and the way the dynasties ran and those, those familial relationships and, and who was the stake president of this and the bishop of this and why they were marrying each other's daughters and all that really, really comes in with this doctrine. It was very important to early Mormons. It wasn't because their daughters were hot. It was something <laughs> Have you seen the pictures? Yeah. <laughs> According to Mark Twain, so, they weren't. No. <laughs> so, so, John, ex explain this a little bit more then, because I, I, I haven't heard this... Uh, uh, law of adoption, and I, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around th this eternal progression. Where I, I see, you know, God's got a throne, then Christ's going to take it, and God will move up higher, and Christ is where He was. But but when it says that that humans are co-heirs with Christ, does that mean that we're at the same level, or are we still a level below Him, or is this where like the what we have to become an Adam and then become a Christ until we can get to that. I mean, how does this work? Well, that, that, that figures in later, uh, to the, to the, um, Adam God doctrine, but, but really for, for, for both Brigham Young and Joseph Smith taught that the, um, internal increase was real. So a after you, um, were exalted, you would keep having children. You would keep having this, um, and, and they spoke, they interchangeably spoke about families and kingdoms. Um, much like the Abrahamic sort of, uh, of way of viewing things, that, that he's the patriarch over, over all these things. And I, I would suggest that everybody, to get a better feel for this doctrine, read John D. Lee's Mormonism Unveiled. He talks a lot about his ceiling to Brigham Young and those sort of relationships that they have. There's other sources out there where you can read it, but that, that's a good primary source. So, so it, 
I, I think that that sort of fit in later where, where you might go through this, this, this thing of, of seeding your own world as an Adam and then eventually being a Jehovah and, but, you're you're still adding to the kingdoms of the great Elohim. So the way that the way that our God of this world, Jehovah, gets his kingdom expanded is he has other gods underneath him, and those gods keep expanding their kingdom and on and on, and they get more glory. Being there's more souls that they they lord over. I guess is how it goes. Well, so okay. how, how does that fit with intelligences? <laughs> Glenn, we'll get to intelligence yeah, in yeah. a minute. Finish okay. the scripture for me. Finish the scripture for me. For behold, this is my work and my glory. How's the rest of it go? I don't know. Moses, Moses 139. For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass, to bring the to immortality, pass the immortality and eternal life, eternal man. life of man. That's what all this is. Yeah, okay. You know, I, 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 taught a, I taught a gospel doctrine lesson on that once where I, I started exactly the way that you did, Mike. And I said, this is my work and my glory. And then the second half I said to make sure that everybody gets everything they want when they say their prayers and never gets hurt and that it doesn't rain when they don't want it to. And they pretty much rode me out of the class on a rail on that one. <laughs> All right, this, this is what I this is. Quote, yeah. when, we, when we follow Christ's example and inherit the things that Christ inherits and become gods ourselves, we give glory to the Father because we were following the Father's teachings. So we give glory to the Father when our families, who we presided over as priesthood bearers, step up as, as we did and inherit their exaltation, they give glory to us, just as Christ gave glory to his Father, and so on and so forth. It's a giant family chain, one giving glory to those who presided over them and taught them and, and shown this light of the gospel to them. And when they were obedient to the gospel, they received their exaltation. And the glory what goes all... All along a family chain. What is glory? Light it's and like, truth and intelligence. It's like spiritual high fives. No, it's the glory <laughs> the glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. Okay? When you have a true principle, then you teach it. That's shining a light. When you uh, wait, live wait, that principle and receive the blessings of it, that's truth. If, okay? if, if, when, you, if when you live the gospel and receive the blessings of the gospel, you receive the light and truth, and you give glory to the person who gave it to you. If glory is intelligence, and I'm not, I'm, this is in the scriptures, it's not you, and God is gaining in glory, that means God is not omniscient, right? No, God is omniscient. He's how, omniscient how can he gain spirit? How can he gain intelligence? If He's he not gaining intelligence. Wait, we yeah, are I gaining thought... intelligence and giving glory to him. His family is expanding. That's how God gets... That's the only way God expands is through his family. Okay. Uh, he knows okay, all things. Please join us as the discussion continues in part two.